Very important that we always open God's Word together and study together. So if you have a Bible, we're in 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to begin in the last verse of chapter 5 and read through chapter 6. Um, our focus is really going to be on a few key verses tonight. Um, and uh, we often camp out around a couple of verses, no, no, uh, uh, nothing new for us. But I really want to emphasize how important um, these few verses are. Uh, 521, 6, 1, and 2, these three verses, the, this trio of verses are so important. Um, and uh, they kind of come in the middle of a passage all about our call to witness. If you're with us last week, it was about evangelism, about being ambassadors for Christ. This is what God has done, so we got to make it known. This is why we should be on mission. Um, if you were with us last week, you understood, or hopefully you understand why it's so important uh, that we uh, go and tell people about Jesus. We are commissioned to go and tell people about what Christ has done. Now, we concluded around this, this rationale last week. Christ died for all, uh, therefore all can be saved. Uh, no, not that all will be saved. That's the reason why we should go and tell people, so that more can be saved, so that many, as many as possible, as many will uh, come, can be and will be saved. So we don't do ministry without hope or optimism. We are the most bold and the most confident that since Christ died for all, all can be saved. And tonight, we're really going to focus on what Jesus accomplished on the cross, which I hope will embolden us on our mission, on our, in our efforts to evangelize, so that we maybe remove the pressure from our shoulders and from other shoulders, and we put the pressure on someone that can handle it. And that's on Jesus, who has already accomplished the hard part. Um, so Paul explains what salvation is in chapter 5, verse 21. Um, it's a very simple explanation, but it's a very powerful explanation. So I, I wanted to save this verse for really its own message, which will take up most of our time tonight, unpacking what it means to be saved. Now, I think everybody here tonight, you're a professing Christian, you've been saved, you probably know all of this, but I want you to, to, to kind of get behind the curtains, and I want you to see with in, in every little uh, bit detail that I can give you. I want us to understand what it means to be saved, how we get saved, what was done to save us, and what that means for people that are not saved, and, and, and how we can continue to pre preach, preach to them. So, uh, chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, this is Paul after just telling us about the importance of being ambassadors, imploring people to come to Christ. This is his summary statement that turns out to be a pretty amazing verse and, and really message. For he made him, that's God, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might, or so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, or so that we might receive God's righteousness through him and by him. Now, now, Paul is using this verse to motivate us in our evangelism, in our, in our mission. Uh, but it, it tells us something, it tells us what Jesus did, that Jesus did something for us that enables all of us to be saved. 
Now, most of our Bibles tonight, King James, New King James, they, they read, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Uh, other, some translations begin by saying, For our sake, he made him to be sin uh, who knew no sin. Regardless, we, we have these, these two phrases, for our sake or for us. The emphasis in this verse is that God did something for us. That what Jesus did on the cross, that what we should see mo- first and foremost... What we should see, should see bold in font over the cross or under the cross is that God did something for us. God did something for our sake. So how can we be saved? Because God did something for us. I want it to be very clear that had not God did something for us, we would have no hope. The religious Old Testament and the Old Covenant was about what we could do and what we should do and what we must do to get to God. The, 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 the culmination of the Old Testament is that there's nothing we can do to get to God. Every religion of the world that under the sun, it's about what can you do for God. Christianity exclusively says you can't do anything because of your sin, but God has done something for you. God has done something for us because God is for us. That's the message. That is the gospel. That sets the tone. How you understand God. What you think about when you think about God. God did something for us because God is for us. Do we get that? The cross explains God is for us. That, That could never be preached enough. There is salvation in no other message. God did something for us. Because God is for us. How do we know that God is for us? This verse, of course, tells us, but other places in the Bible put it even more powerfully. Romans 5, verse 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, so how do we know God's love? God did something for us. Now, now, you know, in Memorial Day, we celebrate men and women who laid their life down for their country because they love their country, right? We're in debt to them. That makes sense that someone would lay their life down for a country they love, for a cause that they love, for people that love them and support them. But think about this. Paul says, for righteous people, you might would die. For a good person, you would maybe die. But God sent Jesus to die for us who were still in sin, who in the, in the translation there is that we weren't thinking about God, we weren't asking for anything from God, our minds weren't on God, our minds were as far away from God as possible. Yet God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinning and we were still in sin with no mind about God at all, Christ died for the ungodly. So that's what the verse on the screen says for in Romans 8, 31 and 32. So what shall we say to this truth? What shall we say to this message? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So so do you get the message? God is for us. God did something for us all. So let me make something clear about this. God is not like us who often do things for others, but if they don't respond, we back away a little bit. 
There are times that we get motivated to do something for people, but when those people don't respond or when those people don't appreciate or recognize what we've done, we rescind our heart. You've been there before. You get motivated to do something for church or maybe for your community or for your country or for your family or whatever it is, right? And we all have been there. Maybe we've been the people who've who've pitched the fit and got upset and then backed away or maybe we've been the people who didn't recognize what people did for us regardless we've been on both sides that oftentimes we do something people don't appreciate it we get mad and we rescind the olive branch we say hey you know you don't appreciate what i've done and maybe we don't even we don't just turn away we get angry and, and our our love or our act of kindness turns into act an act of unkindness an act of anger that is not how god is Thank the Lord that that is not how God is. You might get angry at someone, and I'm not saying it's not justified anger. I'm not saying that people shouldn't respond to you. People should appreciate when you do things for them. People should say thank you. They should appreciate you. They should recognize you. I deal with this all the time as a pastor when people serve and get their feelings hurt because somebody didn't respond the way they thought they should or someone didn't say thank you or someone didn't appreciate it, and people come to me and say, I'm never doing that again. And hey, that's fine. You can be that way, and people are like that, right? You know, family members do something, and some other people in the family don't appreciate it and they say I'm never doing that again that's our nature that's a childish nature but it's still our nature right we're we're just big babies sometimes right but but thankfully God isn't like us God never says well I don't know if I'm for you anymore I, I don't know if I'm on your side anymore you, you didn't appreciate me. You didn't, you know, respond to me. God never. And we can't understand this about God because we are so temperamental. We're so fragile. We're so childish. We assume God is like us, right? And we often preach that God is like us, but that's not the Bible. God is not temperamental in his love. He's not conditional in his grace. His love endures forever. His mercy is everlasting. I could put a hundred verses on the screen, but we'd be here all night reading them. But y'all know the verses, right? Y'all know the scripture that says, that that punctuates this. God's love is not temperamental or conditional. His love endures forever. His mercy is everlasting. Uh, Again, that's not just New Testament. That's Old Testament. So when you think about God, think about how he did something for you. God is for us because he did something for us. The proof of what God did is like and who God is and how he feels about us is what he did for us. The gravity of what he did, the extent he went through in that act is what punctuates just how for us God really is. The, the, the keystone verse that we all quote all the time, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. Now, that, that, that word so isn't an adjective. It's not saying God loves the world this much, even though that's very true. That word so is, is saying this is how God loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So how do we know that God loves the world? How do we know? know that God is for us because he gave us something and the, the beauty of the gospel is and the power of the cross is that God doesn't take it back maybe you're, you've been that way before with people you hey I'm you don't appreciate this I'm gonna take it back you know we do that with our kids we do that with our family members we do that with people right or, or we say hey I'm not gonna do it again God isn't like that God gave us Christ and and the, the work of Jesus on the cross was such in such a way it was permanent that it couldn't be undone. Think about that. 
that God provided a full and final solution for our sin. This is how God showed his love. He gave his only son up for us. But this verse in Corinthians details how God gave up Jesus for us. He didn't just give him up over to death, which was bad enough. He gave him over to sin. That's what the verse says. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. To be sin. Now, Jesus didn't commit a sin. He became sin. And there's a theological depth there that we can't even begin to, to breach tonight. We're, we're going to try to get it in as, in as digestible way as we can. The sinless, spotless, righteous Son of God became sin. Became our sin. Think about this. Jesus took your sin, my sin, every sin in the world. And he became our sin. Let me explain. And this describes the nature of our salvation in such a fundamental way. When John the Baptist first saw Jesus and he was proclaiming, pointing to Jesus and telling the world that was following him to follow Jesus. This is how John described Jesus. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God. So he introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God, which they would have automatically been thinking about lambs in the temple, lambs on the sacrificial altar, lambs being slaughtered for sin. So that he automatically paints that picture. Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just as the Lamb ceremonially takes away our sin for a season, Jesus is going to take away our sin. But Corinthians says he didn't just take away our sin he becomes our sin Isaiah the prophet looked forward to the cross and said this we all like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all so again this is what Paul is talking about our sin was laid on Jesus it was the burden of our sin was put on his back Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted. Who did the oppressing? Who did the afflicting? God did. God slaughtered the lamb in our place. And like a lamb, he didn't open his mouth. Like a sheep, he was silent. So Jesus took our sin and he underwent our judgment. So you see the connection there. Jesus took our sin and by taking our sin, he took our seat on the altar. He took our place on the judgment seat. This is what we call, and you could take, you could, there are books as thick as uh, stacks of Bibles together. There are books so, so, so deep and so, so, so long and so, so, so complicated on the subject of substitutionary atonement. This is what, this is the concept of substitutionary atonement. So I want you to know this term. You sh we should all know this term as Christians. Uh, and we should know how to communicate with other people because this is the background of what salvation is and what it does for others and what it does for us. So here's the basic definition of substitutionary atonement. Every sin of every sinner, all the sin in the universe, from original sin, that is the nature of sin that's in all of us, the sin that Adam and Eve gave to us, the sin that is in us that causes us to rebel against God, the nature of sin, from the nature of sin to the actions of sin. 
Do you understand how the spectrum is covered from original sin that's in all of us to every individual sin? Every sin of every sinner was placed on Jesus. I've used this analogy before, but remember when Jesus was praying in the garden, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Nevertheless, your will be done. He went in that garden three times. He came out, he went back. He came out, he went back. He came out, he went back. He drank the cup of sin, right? He says, it's a cup that's before me. Let it pass before me, but if not, let your will be done. That cup represented the sins of every sinner. The sins of every sinner that would believe, the sins of every sinner that wouldn't believe, and the sins that, of those who couldn't believe, as in the devil and his angels. Jesus died for all sin on the cross. Now, of course, not everybody's going to respond to that. Of course, the devil can't respond to that. But the point of it is God provided a solution for sin so that there could not be an excuse for those that are in sin. Every sin was paid for. Every sinner's sin was placed on Jesus. He drank the cup every last drop. Now, there are some groups that don't believe this. You've heard of people who are Calvinists. Uh, Calvinists believe in God's sovereignty. I believe that. Calvinists believe that God's in control. I believe that. John Calvin was just a man who believed a few things and people put them all together and give people that label, but some people in the Calvin branch believe that Jesus only died for certain people, that he only died for those that would believe, and those that don't believe, or they, did, they weren't, they, he didn't die for them. We don't believe that. That's not biblical, right? And John Calvin didn't really believe that. That's just taken from his words and misconstrued. But the point of it is, we don't believe that Jesus has died for some people, that he just died for the elect, that he just died for a group of people and everybody else is toast. He died for all people, even those that do not and will not believe. That's key for us to, to be on mission and to preach the gospel, that we get this right. So when it says he became sin, it's saying that God the Father made Christ to be regarded and treated as sin, even though Jesus never sinned. And, and the result was not just the event of the cross, but it was something that happened while he was on the cross. Now follow me here. You see, Jesus went to the cross for two reasons. The first reason is he went to the cross to identify with our suffering. He went to the cross to show that the world's broken and that the, the best man, the greatest person that ever lived was turned, against, turned on by the world. The enemy uh, falsely accused him, wrongfully sentenced him, and he went to the cross to show all of us that this world's upside down. And even the best suffer the worst. But the more important reason that he went to the cross was that God would use this moment to thwart the power of the enemy and he targeted the enemy's control and the power the enemy used over the world, which was sin. So Jesus hung there, blameless and innocent. And you got to think, if Jesus went to the cross only to identify with suffering, if he went to the cross just as a product of this broken world, and that was it, then you got to think God must be pretty angry at the world for doing that to Jesus. Right? I, I mean, I would be, anybody would be. God incarnate, the Son of God, the God in flesh. you got to think God the Father must have been pretty angry. I mean, angry is not even a good enough word, right? The wrath of God must have been bullying hot, right? And Jesus alluded to the fact that his Father would be was very angry and his father was waiting to intervene 
Matthew 26, Jesus said, Do you not think I can appeal to my Father and he will send at once more than 12 legions of angels? So, so 60,000 angels potentially, but legions, 5,000 soldiers. So can you imagine the scene? He's saying, hey, what's about to happen to me is going to break God's heart and burn God's heart so badly that God would send his angels to rescue me and to punish everyone else in my place. But we know that Jesus didn't ask the Father to judge the world when he was on the cross, did he? What did he ask God to do? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They, they knew what they were doing. It looked like they knew what they were doing. They were doing it very well. This tells me that sometimes we don't really know what we think we know, do we? As God's wrath burned hot against the world, as it rejected Jesus, as it had long rejected him, Jesus stepped in between. Jesus stood in the gap. And he knew what this meant. Now, we know this was a long, uh, predestined, preordained decision, but can you imagine this? God is ready to judge the world. God is ready to do what he probably should have done in Genesis 3 and could have done throughout history. God is ready to judge the world. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Judge me instead. Do you see what he's doing? It's what John and Isaiah talked about. Just like the temple sacrifice where the lamb was ceremonially laid on the altar and would absorb sin and suffer the penalty. Jesus would do what the sacrificial lamb couldn't do. It wasn't ceremony. It was the real deal. And that's why Luke 23, says it about the sixth hour, which was noon, there was darkness over the whole land. The sun's light failed because nobody could look at what was about to happen. It was a, an experience beyond comprehension, an experience that if people had witnessed it, they probably wouldn't have lived to tell it. Jesus, during that three hours, suffered the wrath of God that every sinner could ever deserve. Think about that. Jesus suffered for my sin, for your sin, for every sinner in hell, for every sinner that's been saved and went to heaven. For three hours, he was under the torrent of hellfire. God's righteous wrath. It was a horrifying experience. But it was also the most glorifying moment in history. Because sin was justly paid for. Sin was the penalty sin deserved was suffered by Jesus. A horrifying experience, but a glorifying moment. Jesus did this for God's glory. He got the last word against sin. God's holiness upheld as sin was punished, but also he did this for our good. God's love prevailed against sin. He took the worst of us and the worst from us and provided the best for us. 
when those three hours of torment and suffering were over, Isaiah tells us that Jesus was unrecognizable as a man. He was a charred, broken husk. But the Bible says he wasn't dead. Think about that. The Bible says he wasn't dead. After he suffered, after he was tormented, he gave up his life. Remember, he said, nobody takes my life from me. I give it up. Jesus was a living sacrifice. He endured the judgment. He drank the cup. There was nothing left. Sin was paid for, but he was still alive. And then he gave up his life. A solution for sin was provided for all time to come. Hebrews 10 verse 12 says Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. And I want to just talk about this for just a minute. This is why as awful as sin is, just look at what it did for, to Jesus. We just spent 20 minutes talking about this. As awful as sin is, Jesus is unfazed by it. You know why? Because he's already paid for it. Yeah, it breaks his heart. But you know why God is patient with this world? Because the payment's already been provided. Do you understand? You know why God doesn't wring his hands over the sin in the world like maybe we do? Because he's already provided the payment and it was a horrifying experience, but he did it. That's how much God loves the world. Listen, this is why people often criticize Jesus for being lenient towards sinners. You know the stories. Oh, Jesus, how can you be sitting down with this sinner? How can you be tolerating her sin? How can, do you not know who she is and what she's done? And the Pharisees accused him of being lax. I mean, are you kidding? Do you know what sin would do to Jesus? Do you know what sin did to him? People, people have criticized me before, and I'm just being transparent. Justin, why are you so easy on sinners, and why are you so easy on sin? I, 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 you know, I, I, I don't think you can listen to the last 20 minutes of me preaching and tell me I'm easy on sin or sinners, because I made it clear, this is what sin deserves. But my point is, religion loves to scream at people about their sin and you got to do better and be better and get better. I don't preach that. Jesus didn't preach that. You know why I don't preach that? Because that's not what saves people. You get it? There's a real solution for sin. And it's not what me and you do. I grew up in church and I would hear that Jesus did this, but then I, then I would hear sermons about you got to do this and you better do this and you better stop that and you better be careful with that and all those things are true. But, but listen, that doesn't save anybody. What saves people is showing people what sin is and what it does and what Jesus did because of it and for it. That's why he went to the cross. He suffered the wrath that we deserve. And if we don't trust in Jesus, we'll suffer that wrath. And it's such a silly thing because he's already paid for it. He's already suffered it. I, I'm not lax towards sin. I just want you to know that you can actually get some help from your sin. And it's not through what you do. It's through what he did. On the cross, he took your sin. He suffered and he bled. So that's why I preach Jesus again and again and again. And I let the Holy Spirit do the hard part. 
Jesus said, hey, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So you know what my job is, what preacher's job is to, are to do? Preach Jesus and his cross, that he took the sin of the world on the cross, he died in our place, and he gave us a way to be saved. Because that's the only solution for our sin. Moralism doesn't save anybody. As in, hey, if you do this, God will be happy. Or if you stop that, that doesn't save anybody. It's the power of the cross that saves people. And that's why the, the verse says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin for us, that we might, or so that we might become his righteousness. The only chance, this is very... very People say, hey, what, how do you, what's, how, how, what's the hope for these people that are lost? The only hope for people that are lost, that are in sin, is that Jesus died for their sin. Already happened, check. But it's that by trusting in Jesus, his righteousness is transferred to them. That's how you and I got saved. That's why we are saved. Jesus' righteousness was transferred to us. Our sin was transferred to him. If you've ever used online banking, transferring money from one account to the other is very easy. You go to the transfer box and you type in the amount here. If you've got a savings account or a special account, right, you've got a number here and a number here. You put this number in it. You click the button. Next thing you know it, the money's moved. You don't got to write a check and wait three days. It's just, hey, move from this box to that box. Real easy. When you get saved, your sin went on Jesus and his righteousness went on you. It's not about obeying rules and performing certain rituals. It's faith in Jesus and receiving his righteousness. Flip back with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. I want you to see this broken down by Paul. Uh, and it's very simple. You've heard this before. But this is a, a real simple explanation. Romans 3, verse 21 through 25. Paul says, Some have believed that righteousness is only achieved by law-keeping and law-abiding. And Paul says, That was once believed to be the only way, as the Old Testament taught, but now there's a better way. Now there's an actually achievable way for you and me. Romans 3, 21 says, Now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, has been revealed being witnessed by the law and prophets, as in it was always pointed to from the Old Testament. Even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and all, all who believe, for there is no difference, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth to be our propitiation, which is just a fancy word for atoning sacrifice, to be atonement by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. See, do you see that how this explains the transfer? Jesus did this for everyone so everybody can receive the gift. So that's what saves us, his sacrifice and his righteousness. But this is where the personal relationship comes in. Personal relationship. Plenty of people confess that Jesus died for their sins and died for them, but true Christianity is understanding that Jesus can now live through us. Because that, that verse in Corinthians, in this explanation of righteousness, our sin goes on Jesus. He's our propitiation. He's our atonement. His righteousness comes on us. 
This is where faith is not just a one-time confession, but a constant life of trusting and leaning and putting weight on him. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is the, 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 the Christian life. We lean on Jesus to live through us, for his righteousness is enough for us. We must never confuse his righteousness for our own righteousness. Jesus is not just the door we walk through. He's the pastor we find our rest in. John 10 verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So the idea is we don't just come through Jesus and then have to do it ourselves. A lot of religion teaches, okay, believe in Jesus, but now you better do this and don't do that and avoid that and you better do that. And it makes the pressure on our shoulders. But there's a, a follow-up of salvation. We are justified by what he did and then we receive his righteousness. We should never become prideful that we've done this ourselves, but we also must stay needy and dependent on what he provides. A lot of people stumble in this. We get saved, but then we shift the weight. We get saved, but then we think, well, what do I got to do? What, do I, what must I do to stay saved? But that's not the message. Jesus alone justifies. Salvation means we can rest and be secure in him. Religion and legalism cuts the legs off a lot of professing Christians because they come to Jesus, but then they start trusting in what they wear and what they do and where they go and how they live. But those things are not what save. It's Jesus and the righteousness he gives us that makes a difference. The only work that saves us is the work of Jesus on the cross and only his righteousness will please God. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, am I not supposed to live differently? Yes. Yes, you are. But what I'm trying to quell is where religion usually leads us. Because religion loves to make it take the focus off what we should be doing as Christians. And we immediately start judging people and we immediately start becoming self-righteous, which is, hey, what can I do to be justified? And that's why Jesus commanded Judge not that you be not judged. Because if you've been saved by the cross, you've got to trust that to save other people too. Because if you start judging people like there's no cross that judges people or, or saves people, then all of a sudden you take, you move your judgment. You move your salvation out of the cross and back into your own hands. And you don't want that. It's so tempting to obsess over other people but really, I don't mean to insult your intelligence, but we can only focus on us. And if we don't focus on us and we focus on others, we forget about us. So let's focus on what Jesus wants to do in us. And let's let that lifestyle do the convicting and condemning. Let the preacher in the sermons worry about other people. Jesus took our sin and now we can take his righteousness. Now flip back to chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians and I want to read these next two verses and we'll be done. We then, as workers together with him. So see what salvation has done? It's 
placed his righteousness in us, and all of a sudden, now we're a team. Now it's not just me on my own. It's not me trying to please God, me trying to work for God. It's Christ in me and Christ with me. And here's Paul's message to us. We plead that you not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in the acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Or now is the time for you to let salvation make a difference in your life. Today, not tomorrow. Not when you go to heaven. This is people who say, well, I've been saved and, you know, I don't live for Jesus, but I trust him. And, you know, he saved me a long time ago. And they don't go to church and they don't, they don't live for Jesus. Listen, this verse says, hey, we need to have a talk. Or people that sit back and say, well, yeah, I know, I'm, you know, I'm saved, but there's still a lot wrong with me, and I'm not trying, I'm not even making any effort to, to, get, to do anything better. This verse says, hey, let's have a talk. Because if the righteousness of God is in you, there's something happening in you. There's something that's different about you. Yeah, you're forgiven based on what Jesus did, but now you've received his righteousness, and you've got to answer for that. So when we get saved, two things happen about Jesus' righteousness. It's imputed to us and imparted to us. I know these are words we don't use all the time, but these are the best words we can use here. Imputed and imparted. Now, imputed is a legal term. Imputed is the idea that in a courtroom, the judge says not guilty and based on his declaration alone, you are justified. Not what you do. And you're in a courtroom, the judge is the only one that can help you out, right? I don't care what your story is. If he doesn't agree with you, you're toast, right? So when the judge slaps the gavel in and says justified, forgiven, saved, that's salvation. That's what it means to be imputed with righteousness. God says you're justified by Jesus' blood, by faith in him. That means it's a gift that God has given to you. What Jesus has done for you. But that's not all. Salvation is not static. It's dynamic. So we are imparted with righteousness as well. As in the nature of Jesus. The grace of God. That's what the word grace means. It's the power of God. The nature of God. So not only are we standing in front of God as righteous. But we are living for God as righteous. Does that make sense? Imputed means in front of God, you're clear. Imparted means in the world, you're different. Imputed means God has said you're forgiven. That settles it. Nobody can argue because God has, been, has, has, done, has did the work for you. Imparted righteousness means God has imparted to you. God has transferred the nature to you. Not just the gift, but the nature. Some teach only one of these, but we know it's both. Standing before God, we're righteous. Living for God as righteous. So salvation is a work of God for us, but it's also God's power in us. Does that make sense? That's what Romans 6, 7, and 8 is all about. We're dead to sin, alive to God. We've read those verses before. Buried in baptism, raised in new life. When you read the New Testament about new life, transformed life, 
that's what he's talking about. So he says, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Look at verse 3. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. There's no greater obstacle than a bad testimony. Wouldn't you agree? There's no greater obstacle for ministry than a bad testimony. So what should our testimonies be? That no matter what our circumstances are, we are trusting in Jesus for justification and transformation. We've received his righteousness and he is making a difference in our lives. If you read the rest of this uh, early part of this chapter, you'll see Paul talk about no matter what the circumstances were. He doesn't boast in his treasures. He didn't groan in his trials. He simply lived by faith in Jesus. And the grace of God lived through him. And that's our, that's our confession. We live by faith in Jesus and his grace lives through us. Look down at verse 11 through 13. This is Paul's appeal. Oh, Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children. You also be open. Now, this is our message to the world. Insert name there instead of Corinthians. Our hearts should be wide open. Our hearts should be transparent. People should see in us the gift of salvation. We trust that Jesus has done a work for us that we could not do for ourselves. But we have received from him his righteousness and it's making a difference. Is, is that as, have I made that as simple as I can? He became sin for us so that we might become righteous through him. He forgave us. We didn't do anything to get it, to earn it. But his righteousness has been given to us, imputed and imparted. So we are different. We are new. And our appeal to the world is, God has done this same thing for you. You can receive it just like we have. Church, let's not receive the grace of God in vain. We know what Jesus has done for us. We know where life is found. Let's tell the world about it. Better yet, let's show the world how it's done. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for explaining to us through your word that it's a work that Jesus has done for us. Lord, thank you for making this gift accessible and available to everybody. Lord, we know that everybody won't receive it. We know that everyone doesn't believe it. But our message to the world isn't be like us. Our message to the world is trust in Jesus. Our message to the world is he has done a work in us. He can do that same work in you. He forgave me. He forgave you. He can change your life. His righteousness can be given to you and where sin has worked against you, his righteousness and his grace will work for you. Lord, help us to get a hold of this. Help us to examine our own hearts 
If sin is still dominating us, let us look at the cross and realize that Jesus died for that sin. Why are we still living in it? Jesus paid for that sin. Why are still, we still living in it? His righteousness has been given to us. So that means there should be a difference. Lord, let us not be distracted by other people, but let us look in the mirror and ask ourselves, am I living by faith in him? And is his grace living through me? Salvation is a gift. It's a powerful gift. Lord, let us take the most advantage of it and make the most use of it. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.